Hello, you're listening to The Tar Sands Diplomat, a satirical thriller set in the Canadian Diplomatic Service, podcast by the author, Keith Halliday, chapter by chapter. For more information or to leave a comment, visit keithhalliday.com or send an email to khalliday at tarsandsdiplomat.com. Now, podcasting to you from an undisclosed location. Well, his spare room, actually. Here's the author, Keith Halliday. Thanks. Welcome to episode two. A quick word about the music you've been enjoying. It's the Goldberg Variations by Bach, performed by a young Whitehorse pianist named Jamie Phillips Freeman. McGregor has an attachment to the Goldberg Variations because of their connection to Glenn Gould and through him to the glory days of the Foreign Service. At the height of the Cold War, Gould made his famous concert tour to Moscow and Leningrad, a bit of high-profile cultural diplomacy facilitated by Canadian diplomats at the embassy in Moscow. Also, McGregor will speak some French in this chapter. He has a much better accent than me. You'll have to use your imagination on that one. Now, on to McGregor and Chapter 3. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 3, Maple Flot Flight 633. The next day, I was in steerage class on the Maple Flot Flight to Heathrow. Somehow Julian had gamed the travel guidelines to get a seat on his preferred airline, but I hadn't had enough time. My departmental instincts told me I should get to Brussels before Dorf changed his mind, and arriving on Friday would give me the weekend to get over my jet lag. I sat in my seat, enjoying a scotch and some party-flavored extruded snack pellets. These seemed to have replaced the peanut. The national airline was a bit like the department or the CBC. Every time you went away and came back, it seemed harder to remember why everyone thought of it as a national treasure. Nonetheless, I was excited to be headed for Brussels. I didn't know then what we know now, of course and I was as keen as a new recruit to fill Fanshawe's empty place setting in Brussels. I'd been marooned for years in Ottawa, which is a sad, gout-free zone where even the French restaurants are run by dour Presbyterian ex-public policy analysts. I shouldn't complain, but to be frank, I was tired of being deputy director, minor Eastern European statelet section. While this may sound impressive and conjure up images of the Caucasus and spies playing hide-and-seek through the tangled wreckage of the Iron Curtain, The section consisted of just me and my surly underling. Nor did I like people like Dunscap telling everyone that personnel used the section as a dumping ground for colleagues broken by sociopathic ambassadors or liver cirrhosis. Personnel, of course, assured me that I would have the same chances of promotion no matter where I was posted. But nonetheless, I was still keen to get my name published again in Creeps Abroad, or Canadian Representatives Abroad, as it is more formally known. Before my departure, there'd been the usual departmental hiccups. Besides Dorf's secretary thinking Smedling was going, finance had deposited my expense advance into his account. Dorf had wanted to brief me about something, but he went to a meeting at the Privy Council office and was never seen again. I flipped through my address book, looking for contacts and friends from previous postings who were in Brussels. This would have been easier on a Blackberry or my iPad, as Julian kept telling me, but I still keep my best contacts in a notebook. I don't like the idea of keeping all my personal contacts on a department computer system. It would be one thing if it were just the weasels in security division compiling lists and making those fancy multicolored network diagrams. But if security division can do it, then one can probably assume that the Americans, French, Russians, and teenage Chinese hackers have also tapped into the system. I was surprised to count up how many old friends, professional contacts, and annoying former interlocutors had ended up in Brussels. The city had literally thousands of people working at the European Commission, the Council of Ministers, the European Parliament, NATO, and the foreign missions accredited to these bodies. There were even a few lost souls 
who'd washed up at various embassies to that Brussels afterthought, the Kingdom of Belgium. Then I got to the V's. My finger stopped on the name of Camille Vautrin, currently posted at the French mission to the European Union. As I have promised to tell the truth in this memoir, I should admit that this was not the first time Camille's name had crossed my mind since Dorf mentioned Brussels to me. She and I crossed paths on two previous postings, and I helped her during her sabbatical with some Russian archival documents when she visited Moscow to research her book on Count Nesselrode, Tsar Alexander's foreign minister at the Congress of Vienna. She was, in my view, the perfect woman, smart, beautiful, French, and with an encyclopedic knowledge of the Napoleonic Wars. My wife Elizabeth had never liked her. She was even one of those rare French women who had a soft spot for New World men, as long as their rugged frontier personas were complemented by a liking for opera and the ability to speak French. We'd always been on good terms. Perhaps one of those fantasies I used to get sitting across from Camille at dinner parties might come true this time. But first, I had to make sure she wasn't already seeing some insufferable French colleague or one of those Canadian frozen French fry magnates who keep opening factories in Belgium. I ordered another scotch, pushed aside thoughts of Camille, and opened my copy of The Other Side of the Hill. It's a gripping account of British strategist Liddell Hart's interviews with defeated German generals in 1945. It was a first edition, bought in one of London's Cecil Court used bookstores by Julian as a gift when he left my section. Julian was one of the few remaining practitioners of the thank you card and the unexpected gift. He was also one of the very few young people who have a real interest in history, not like Cornelia Frett, his predecessor in my section. She was always getting Himmler and Heydrich confused and thought that the Canadian army had somehow liberated Holland without passing through Belgium first. I enjoy sitting on planes, a good book or an iPad filled with obscure foreign newspapers in one hand and a scotch in the other. One is completely isolated from the usual villains, such as the Blackberry and the Divisional Secretary. Even the blood-curdling shrieks of vengeful Directors General are inaudible in an aluminum tube hurtling over Iceland at 35,000 feet. I noticed that the airline was threatening to put Wi-Fi on its planes, which would shatter my in-flight idol. Even turning off your Blackberry would be no defense against your seatmate shouting, Can you hear me now? at a frozen Skype screen. I was safe from that for now. I pushed my seat back, took a swig of airline scotch, and opened my book. I read with interest a scene describing General Guderian's career-limiting visit to Hitler to protest a bad decision during the first Russian winter campaign. The old Prussian generals, when not invading Poland or indulging other leather-booted character flaws, encouraged a refreshing frankness from subordinates. Adolf preferred sycophants. He ignored Guderian and, as a large percentage of university graduates entering the department these days can still tell you, he lost the war. My Prussian reveries were shattered by a sudden clunk as a television screen popped out of the ceiling. I sipped my whiskey as I waited to see if they played a less parochial version of the Canadian news on international flights. The lead story on the declining number of raisins in Canadian breakfast cereal ended that notion, and I returned it to General Guderian and the always entertaining Ostfront. But suddenly, as the last raisin graphic flashed behind the newsreader's self-important leer, I was startled to see the chilling glare of my own supreme leader on the screen. A box scrolling across the bottom of the screen said, Prime Minister kicks off new European trade initiative, before continuing with the hockey scores. Beside the Prime Minister stood a man whose body shape and crumpled suit reminded me of our minister, but I couldn't tell for sure because a box labeled Breaking News covered his face. The Prime Minister's office, or PMO to the cognoscenti, is notorious for ignoring the department and concocting its own perky foreign policy. 
How you could kick off a new European trade initiative without involving us in the Europe branch is something only the former pool cleaners in PMO can answer. I scrambled for my earphones and caught the Prime Minister in mid-soundbite. With the comprehensive European trade agreement delayed, it is critical for Canada to address a number of key issues with the European Union where progress has regrettably been stalled for years under the lethargy and incompetence of the foreign serve, I mean, previous government. These key issues include exports of safe Canadian asbestos, our safe hormone-treated beef, which Canadian families eat every day, furs trapped in Canada's new humane leghold trap, canola made with the assistance of life sciences technology, sustainably harvested lumber, Canada's unique nuclear power technology, the products of the annual sustainable seal harvest, and our clean energy exports, which on a well-to-wheels basis are as environmentally friendly as any country's. I suppressed a cringe. These were all the topics that made nice liberal Europeans point their forks at you at dinner parties when they found out you were a Canadian diplomat. Making the world safe for asbestos and clear-cut timber was not something I stressed in my talk with new recruits. Our latest problem was how the Europeans were working once again on a climate change scheme that would classify Canadian tar sands oil as ultra-high carbon. This would effectively lock it out of the European market, much to the delight of various Russian oligarchs, Middle Eastern oil barons, and kleptomaniacal African dictators. You have to admire modern speechwriters. I hadn't heard our genetically modified Frankenstein canola called made with the assistance of life sciences technology before. And as for calling oil from the tar sands clean energy, I recalled colleagues from the energy division using the same well-to-wheels phrase the Prime Minister had used. They kept going on about grams of carbon dioxide per joule and how they'd paid an independent consulting firm to write a report showing conclusively that our grams of carbon dioxide per joule were nothing to worry about. Apparently our tar sands oil was much cleaner than Nigerian, Russian, and Venezuelan crude if you factored in all the black goo those countries spilled and wasted while refining it and shipping it to market. We need to impress upon our European friends, said the Prime Minister, and here he paused and glanced meaningfully at the camera to let us all know he really loathed those smarmy European bastards as much as any right-thinking Canadian. The fact that Canada cannot be taken for granted and that further delay is not acceptable. With this in mind, the Minister of International Trade will lead an urgent Can-Do Canada mission to tackle these issues. A senior foreign service officer is at this moment on the Mapleflot flight to Brussels to finalize the preparations. I looked around to see which of my colleagues was on the flight and chuckled to myself. Then I was struck by a horrifying thought. Was this what Dorf wanted to brief me about? It would be all too typical of the department to send me overseas without telling me why I was going. A ministerial visit could take years off one's life. I began to worry that I would soon be pointing out Europe on the map to pimpled youths in the minister's office and handing out backgrounders claiming Canadian asbestos was so safe you could make pajamas out of it. I soon calmed myself down. Not even someone who grew up in the Department of Finance like Dorf would put the political counselor ad interim, that is, me, in charge of a trade mission. That's what trade commissioners were for. I could advise them if they came up with any madcap foreign policy schemes, like signing a free trade agreement with Crimea. But other than that, I would stay on the sidelines. During my connection in Heathrow, I bought a duty-free bottle of Lefroig. My mission accomplished, I wandered listlessly through the other shops. To pass the time, I decided to call the duty officer in Brussels. The tradition of the duty officer dates back to the good old days of diplomacy, when someone always had to be lurking around the embassy with pencil and graph paper to decrypt the war-imminent, burn-embarrassing memos and flee with mistress to Switzerland telegrams from headquarters. However, 
the decision to give cell phones to ambassadors made being duty officer much less fun. One is left with tedious phone calls from Canadian tourists with the usual problems. Lost passports, getting arrested, trying to figure out the local brand name for the obscure Canadian antipsychotic drug they run out of. I knew that Ambassador Glostrom, our man in Brussels, was fond of old diplomatic traditions, like big hospitality budgets, duty officers, and making his secretary type up his hand-scrawled think pieces for Ottawa. I found the duty officer roster I had printed out and saw the name of my former underling, Cornelia Frett. I called her at home. Hello, she said, rather predictably. Les sanglots longs des violins de l'automne blessent mon cœur d'une longueur monotone, I said, conspiratorially. What? grunted Cornelia. The long sobs of the violins of autumn wound my heart with a monotonous languor, I translated. Her French had never been good. A silence followed, followed by another inelegant, What? It's McGregor. That was the Verlaine poem the BBC played to signal the resistance that D-Day was imminent. More silence. It appeared an explanation in painfully mundane terms was required. I'm arriving in two hours, I clarified. Today's Bachelor of Commerce graduates are terribly literal-minded. Arriving where? she asked. In Brussels, of course. I thought you'd be familiar with Verlaine, if not because of the D-Day line, then because it was in Brussels that he tried to shoot Arthur Rambeau in a jealous rage near the Grand Place. More silence. They were lovers, I added, although by now even I had given up hope. More silence of the distinctly annoyed kind. Are you arriving with Smedling? she said finally. Smedling's in the hospital after a Scriabin-related injury, I replied, a bit cross. No, me, in two hours. She retreated to a new defensive line. Why are you calling me? You're the duty officer, I said. I am not the duty officer. Julian is. He just got back. And anyway, McGregor, we're not reliving a historical novel. I don't have to send a horse to the frontier to alert the Grand Duke's men that your carriage is crossing. You see what I mean about her anti-historical attitudes. Belgium has been a kingdom since 1831, and everyone knows it's Luxembourg that's a Grand Duchy. And anyway, I have to go. I have to pick up my dress for the Duchess of Richmond's ball tonight. She had tried to use her most official, I now consider the dossier closed, tone on me, but trailed off uncertainly as if she had made some kind of indiscretion. I was delighted to hear about the Duchess of Richmond's ball. It was the perfect way to kick off my new Brussels lifestyle. I would have gout, like Fanshawe, in no time. Cornelia clearly wasn't excited about me crashing the party, but her counter-interrogation skills have never been strong. She couldn't cope with direct questions. I soon had all the details I needed. I mentally checked the contents of my suitcase. I take a certain pride in being ready for whatever the Foreign Service has to throw at me. In addition to two gray suits, it contained my tuxedo from my favorite tailor, shirt, cufflinks, my old Zarist-era silver flask, plus a small cache of drugs for deli belly, hangovers, and minor infections. In my briefcase were my trusty old fountain pen, a good history book, and the Baydecker Guide to Brussels, 1910 edition. I was wearing my favorite blazer, and in my money clip was cash in euros, U.S. dollars, and sterling in a variety of denominations. Perhaps this was overkill for Brussels, but I prefer to be prepared, not like my colleague in Tripoli, who had to beg passing journalists for a ride to the airport when his credit cards and mobile phone e-wallet stopped working when some warlords started shelling Parliament. I proceeded immediately to one of Heathrow's many tie shops in search of a festive bow tie with a Napoleonic motif. The Duchess of Richmond's ball was a recreation of the ball that took place in Brussels just before the Battle of Waterloo. Wellington and his officers were dancing when a muddy dispatch rider burst into the room with news that the French had crossed the border. 
Thackeray's Vanity Fair depicts the scenes wonderfully, as well as providing literature's first account of Belgian soldiers fleeing in panic. That wraps up episode two. Thanks for listening to The Tarsan's Diplomat. I hope you enjoyed it. Check your iTunes feed next week for episode three. In the meantime, for more information or to leave a comment, visit keithhalliday.com or send an email to khalliday at tarsansdiplomat.com.